Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. This is Steve Kurt and Eric here with the Working Class Bowhunter Podcast, and I just got to tell you guys what I got in my hand right now. It's the Badlands Tree Stand Pack. Badlandspacks.com has made the best tree stand pack that you could ever hey, have. Whoa. Way too many packs in that sentence you just did right now. I'm just, I have a leaflet with the word pack in every single pocket, nook and cranny that you can fit into this pack. It is the greatest thing I've ever seen. It is the greatest pack you've ever seen? I promise that. But in all serious though, the tree stand pack, in our opinion, is the best pack for hunting out of a tree stand. It's got, what's the stash? pouch called the stash pouch is that what the it is sta- it's called the stash basket ladies and gentlemen oh. the stash basket dude this pack is tree stand friendly you can get your hydration in there so you can get a a water pack quiver cat uh, but no compatible. hold on most important of all your grunt call your rangefinder everything you need for bow hunting out of a tree stand is at the ready no fumbling through your pack hey that big buck is no longer going to get away 20 yards straight through the lungs call it a day this episode is also brought to you by Creative Critters Taxidermy by Mark Reif. Some of the best quality taxidermy money can buy. You spend all that money to go after that big buck, and then when it finally happens, you don't want to cut yourself short on a crappy taxidermy mount. Best thing you can do, Creative Critters Taxidermy. And also when you want to stare at that mount and you want to eat that deer that you shot, Smith's Custom Meats right there in Viola, go ahead and check out smithscustommeats.com for all your deer processing needs. Viola, Illinois. Working Class Bowhunter Podcast starts in 3, 2, 1. I think I left about 4 No one honestly really cares. Steve's calling me while I'm holding, <laughs> getting ready for this deer to stand up. Glad you took this deer out. He doesn't even drive American. <laughs> See, that deer's what's exactly what's wrong with this country, right? He doesn't even support local American-made deer-compatible vehicles. <laughs> that one that one arrow cost me $33,000. Just aiming too long and just moved a little bit and I was like oh no it fired you know crap I knew as soon as it left it was just a little high but he came right out in the field made a scrape right in the cornfield started grunting walked 30 yards made another scrape you're listening to the working class bow hunter that's right this is the podcast for Billy Joe Lunchbucket the working man just like me and you my name's Travis T-Bone Turner from the Bone Collector thank you for tuning in Okay, so with us on the uh, ClearShotArchery.com phone, helping you, you know, hear a little bit clearer, we have, uh, it's it's so hard to introduce a legend that uh, that has been, an outdoor legend that has been on TV for longer than we've all been alive, uh, 30 plus years in the industry, plus a video game. Uh, Hank Parker, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, guys. How you guys? Uh, it's it's kind of surreal right now, you know. It's yeah, it's kind of. I'm never at a loss for words. I got to tell you this, but this is uh, this is super cool uh, having you on the other line. 
Well, I tell you, I've stayed lost for words, so that's good. <laughs> well, uh, my we, girlfriend wishes I would stay lost for words too, but hey, you know how it goes. <laughs> we do appreciate um, you coming on the podcast. It, it means a lot. Um, you know, a lot of our listeners got really excited when we talked about having you on, and I know a lot of people look up to you, and you're a legend in the game. So, just thanks for coming on and uh, letting us take up some of your time here. Hey, it's good to be here. Anytime I can be at Deer Camp, that's always fun. But we're at Deer Camp. This is cool. Oh yeah, <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> there you go. You're we're hanging out. You know, you're talking to a couple. Of, yeah, you got an Iowa boy in there, but a couple of Illinois boys. You know, so we know about big deer. So you're in good company. So. We'll, we'll just start with this question. We'll pretend, like, if no one knew who you were, how would you explain, like, who is Hank Parker? Um, can you kind of just go over a quick overview of your career in the outdoor world? I often wonder that myself. Who am I? I wake up, I'm getting that age now where I forget who I am. So uh, I have to ask people. For, I carry a little bio sheet with me to conquer him. <laughs> a little <laughs> cheat sheet. <laughs> I'm a guy, let me tell you, I'm a guy that uh, grew up loving to hunt and fish, and uh, it's all I've ever really wanted to do to make a living. I had a real job once, but you're talking about something to mess up hunting and fishing. A job will do more to mess up hunting and fishing than anything I know of. So I try to shy away from a job, and I've been able somehow to squeak out a living doing what I love to do. And, you know, I've been doing it for a little over 40 years, so I've pulled it off pretty good. So it's been a fun run, and I really enjoy people and the outdoors. And there's so much camaraderie in being outdoors and, and the group of guys and people that you get to hang out with and you meet mm-hmm. in deer camp or a fish camp. You know, it's all uh, it's all good. So. That's what. That's who I am. I'm. A, I'm one of the guys that just love the sport of, uh, of hunting and fishing. I love uh, uh, them equal. People ask me all the time. Say, well, would you rather hunt or would you rather fish? Well, if it's November, I'd rather hunt. If it's June, I'd rather fish. <laughs> that's the perfect answer <laughs> to that yeah. question, too. That is so, the best answer I've ever heard for that. So you know, you got about. You said 40-plus years. I mean, it sounds like you're about ready to collect the pension and retire from hunting and fishing here pretty soon, right? I guess when you retire from hunting and fishing, you get a job. (laughs) (laughs) Never go retire. You don't want to do that. (laughs) Well, that's like an inspiration, you know, because there's a lot of people like, you know, we're to the point where we're all about 25, 26 years old right now, and we're starting to get settled in. (laughs) (laughs) You were there at one time, weren't you? (laughs) So we're all kind of like getting settled into careers and, you know, you know, we're in the back of our heads. We're going, this sucks. I want to hunt and fish for the rest of my life. And <laughs> it's just, it takes, you know, it takes a lot of courage to just not go, have a job and it. just do it. For it. Um, and you almost have to have something really going on for you to be able to pull that off. And I mean, and obviously you did and everything like that. So it's, it's just awesome to, to see somebody that's just down to earth like you then made that their life that's it's really inspiring you have to get lucky along the way and it's all about time and you know life is so much about time and then the time was good for me when i stepped into the world of professional fishing and it uh it worked out really really good and of course we've been doing the hunting show now for 10 years uh 11 years actually so it's amazing how time flies but it's uh it, you got to be a little bit lucky to make it all work, and you got to be willing to work pretty hard at what you do. You know, it's not really work, but it is. Yeah. So it it takes a little bit of luck for it all to come together and fall in place. And I've been very fortunate, very lucky. So, you know, after after about you know thirty, forty plus years, I mean, you know, obviously you've had the the ups and the downs, probably some more downs and some more ups. You know what's what what's been your your drive the whole time? Is it just you just really didn't didn't want to have a boss to do this, or you know, were you finding certain joys? I mean, what what kept Hank Parker, the legend, going? You know, all these years. It was just the passion for the outdoors, and I think that's the most key ingredient to being a professional outdoorsman, whether it's a hunter or a fisherman or a tournament fisherman or whatever. 
you got to love it, man. You got to love it beyond anything else that you could do. You know, I never really, uh, uh, from the time I was 16 years old, I knew I wanted to make a living fishing, and I read about Bill Dance and all these guys that were doing it, and I said, hey, that's for me. That's, that's what I want to do. Well, I never spent any time in my life kind of uh, searching for what I wanted to do or what I wanted to be when I grew up. Uh, so I've never been in the position that I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do uh, to make a living. So I've always focused on that and the passion of the sport. I love it. When I fish, I would come home for a day or two and, and maybe have a week off. I'd go fishing during my week off. And <laughs> same thing when I hunt. You know, I come home from a hunting trip and I'm not going back out for three or four days. I hunt here at home. That's what I like <laughs> That's I always wondered about, like, professional golfers. Like, if they took, like, time off, you know, or took a vacation, you know, do you golf when you're, you know? But obviously, if you got that got that passion, you know, it, it'll it, it'll keep you going. And, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, your, your record speaks for itself. You were passionate. I think that's the whole thing. And, and you know, a lot of guys try to make a career out of hunting and fishing and they get burned out because it is a lot of pressure and it's a lot of people competing for your job, you know. It's mm-hmm. a competitive world out there. There's only a few sponsors to go around and so everybody's trying to get them and you go through the hassle of trying to make it all work and it gets pretty tiring. But if you love the sport, you just, you're, you have endless energy because it's what you do. So that's kind of what's been a blessing to me. I've been able to, uh, to make it work because I just absolutely love it. Still love it today. You know, it's supposed to rain tomorrow, and I'm thinking about going fishing. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to hit you with the question, and this might be a, a pretty difficult question uh, for you to answer. In your whole career, what's your most memorable moment in the outdoors? The most memorable moment for me in the outdoors, you know, I won the Bassmaster Classic, I won the Grand Slam, I won uh, quite a few pretty cool events, and and people have always thought that it would be classic or it'd be maybe when I won the Grand Slam or Angler of the Year or whatever. And uh, the greatest moment I can remember in the outdoors is my youngest son, Timmy. I have five children, all girls, four. And uh, my youngest son, Timmy, he uh, he loves a turkey hunt. And I don't talk in the turkey world. So I told him, unless it's an absolute dire emergency, uh, you, you never talked in the turkey woods. Mm-hmm. One morning we set up and we had a big bird goblin and the steam was coming up off of the broad river in South Carolina where we were hunting. It was just one of those mornings that got painted the most beautiful sunrise you've ever seen in your life. This turkey was just hammering it, boy, in the tree and our anticipation of him just flying down out of that tree and in our lap, you know, it was just overwhelmingly exciting for my young uh, six-year-old son that was sitting between my legs with his little 14 shotgun, and he kept pulling on my shirt up around my collar, and finally I looked down, and he looked at me and said, Daddy, I love you. And he was just overcome with emotion. It was so exciting to him. He broke the rules and talked in the turkey woods, but he couldn't help, and that is my single greatest moment in the outdoors. Well... (laughs) Wow, Can, that's we're, the we're, best we're, answer. We're gonna we're gonna take a take a Kleenex pause here because uh, I, I don't think there's a dry eye. Oh, that was that was a thing of beauty, man. That's the most beautiful thing that's ever been said on this podcast. I've never got chills before having oh, a guest on the podcast, either. and that was amazing. <laughs> ah, come on, we're we're, we're trying to be. We're trying to be laid back. We want people to frown upon us and not think we're anything. Oh, and then you tell us like this genuinely good story. <laughs> that's awesome. Oh, we, oh man, that's awesome. That really is. That's probably one of the best hunting stories I've ever heard. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I promise you. Oh, dude, I, I can't awesome. have, like I you know I don't have any kids you know so I can't even imagine. But I'm sure. Thank God, has, Steve doesn't have uh, kids. Oh, by the man. way, <laughs> it, it wouldn't be good. But yeah, I, I just can't imagine. You know, you're in that perfect surrounding, and then you know just to hear that. I mean, it, movies cannot capture every moments as beautiful as that. Every hunting outdoor family, every father wants that experience, which which is cool. Um, and that is what's so cool about what we get to do is to try 
and show people through television and the things that I've been involved with over the years what an incredible sport it is and a family sport and what camaraderie you can build with your kids, your neighbor's kids, your friends, your buddies. It is just such an absolute perfect environment to communicate. You can have time with your kids and you break a lot of barriers. You know, we as parents, a lot of times we try to talk to our kids while we're driving them to school. And they got so much stuff on their mind, and it's a, it's a cluttered time. But if you've got your kids and you go sit on a riverbank or sit out in the boat or on a pond or in a lake or sitting in the turkey woods or getting ready to hop in a deer stand, it breaks a lot of barriers and allows you to be able to communicate, and you can really uh, have a spiritual relationship with your kids because you remove all that clutter that school and and peer pressure and all the things that kids have to deal with. And the outdoors is just a perfect place to spend quality time. And, you know, that's what you try to pass that on to the next generation. And what a great sport it is to be a hunter or a great sport to be a fisherman and greater yet to be both. (laughs) (laughs) No, I, um, you know, my, I ended up, I fished with my dad a little bit. My dad was never an outdoors guy. I mean, he he's never hunted. And it was it was funny you bring that story up because this year uh, I asked my dad, you know, hey, do you want because he always wanted to try turkey hunting, you know, just never, ever got around to it. And so I asked him, I was like, hey, dad, do you want to go turkey hunting this year? And being that we live in Illinois, you kind of have to I think it starts right during the end of deer season. You got to buy your turkey tags or apply for the lottery. Like, you can't just buy tags. And uh, I asked him if he wanted to do it, and he said, yeah. And I, I thought that was just going to be the coolest experience. You know, me and my dad sitting out there trying to kill some turkeys, and, uh, yeah, I kind of realized I was too late to get turkey tags. So <laughs> he doesn't know anything about the outdoor, you know, turkeys, how they go. And I told him, I was like, you know, man, hey, I guess it's not going to work this year because uh, – you know, like acorns drop every couple of years. Yeah, that's when turkeys come around is when the acorns are dropping. So they're not going to be where we're at this year. So we'll try next year. Dad. Hank, Steve's not as good as a storyteller as no, you I'm are. Not. <laughs> he did not paint that as beautifully as you could no, have. It's a, it's a terrible thing. Moral of the story is, uh, yeah, I kind of forgot. I dropped the ball. <laughs> I tried to go turkey out with my dad. but <laughs> You snooze, you lose, man. I, that just kind of happens. Um, Hank, a big question we got from listeners was, What's your favorite state to hunt and fish? That's a hard one. I go to Saskatchewan, Canada every year. I've been going up there for probably close to 30 years, and I just absolutely love being in the wilderness aspect. Uh, It's remote compared to any place that I hunt in the United States. So it's kind of cool to be in that uh, pristine, remote, Canadian wilderness country, and I, I love that. Uh, so that that's one of my favorite places. Iowa, there's no there's no place I don't believe in America that has uh, as as good a deer across the board as Iowa. And I love Kansas. Uh, anywhere there's a big deer, I like. You know, I just there's something about having the opportunity to kill a big deer that really excites me. So I get fired up any time I, I, I get the chance. And then there's no place like Texas. I love Texas hunting. When I first started going out of the uh, the state of South Carolina, where I've always hunted, the very first state I started hunting in outside of, of my home territory was Texas. And I fell in love with Texas. I had a deer lease out there for uh, over 30 years and went every year and spent a lot of time. And this year, Texas has been incredibly good to me. I feel, I only killed five here all year long, hunted hard, and uh, I killed uh, one in Mississippi and four in Texas. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. <laughs> uh, Texas was pretty good to you then. How many, <laughs> speaking of that, of just your long career in the outdoors, are you a big taxidermy guy? Do you have lots of deer mounts, lots of fish mounts, or? I have no fish and I've got about 58 deer. Do you really? You don't, ha- you don't have any, you don't have any fish? Nut. I love, you know, every hunt is special, you know, and you get these deer and, 
and uh, I try not to mount so many, and I, I didn't this year. I'm not mounting any deer. I've got a couple of European mounts coming, but I, I'm not I'm not actually tanning a hide and, and mount the deer this year. Uh, <laughs> but it's hard sometimes. You put a lot into a hunt. It's a very special animal. You know, people don't understand how you can be a hunter and have tremendous respect for an animal. But I love hunting a five- or six-year-old deer and, and hunt this one specific deer. You yeah. know, and stay at it, and it means so much to you if you get through. And in my office, I've got about uh, I've got about 35 heads. And <laughs> sitting there, and I look at them, and I can relive that point. All I got to do is stare at that deer for about ten seconds, and I'm I'm right back into that hunt. It's, so it's, it's, it's like really, you had a relationship with the deer. Yeah, yeah, I do. It's kind of crazy, but uh, it, it just brings back all those memories. So I relive my hunt through that mount. So I I got them come everywhere. <laughs> so I'm not a I'm not a married man, but uh, you know, you've got this many uh, deer mounts now. Is it is the agreement that if you get another deer mount, you just have to put up a random picture of you and your wife, or is that how that works? You know, so if you got fifty eight deer mounts, you got to have fifty nine pictures of you and your wife. Well, you got to if you're married, your wife's gonna have four hundred pairs of shoes. Oh, okay. <laughs> Hank, that's the agreement. Hank, I'm kind of starting to live this life that you just mentioned there with the shoe problem because I'm starting to get a collection of deer mounts and I got a turkey and you know the whole collection and I do have this whole room is built into a studio um, here at my house for the podcast and um, the closet here in the studio is full of shoes and uh, so I'm kind of fighting that battle now and I think I'm just going to give up as long as I keep getting deer mounts and everything and there's no complaints. I think I should probably just keep my mouth shut. Well, where I live, I live in a log home, and we've got a, it's a very rustic home, and we've got a downstairs kind of a game room. But I have no animals. My wife has killed a grand slam turkey. She loves turkey hunt. She killed the biggest deer we killed here on the farm in South Carolina. So all of her animals are downstairs. Mine are all next door in the office. Oh, <laughs> you don't even have any in your own oh, house. Oh, yeah, I see how it is. <laughs> That's a decent. That's a decent uh, way to work things out, though. Yeah, it, it, I'm the man of my house when she's not here. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. For five minutes, when she goes to the grocery store, <laughs> I have to be real careful. She might walk in while I'm in this conversation. Right? Uh, yeah. I am the man of my house. Let's make that perfectly clear. <laughs> oh yeah, if she gets on, who are you talking to? Oh yeah, I'm sorry, you're replacing the big diamond bracelet order. Uh, we were kind of interrupted. <laughs> it's Jake from State Farm. <laughs> um, so this is might be a tough question. If you didn't have a career in the outdoors, what would you see yourself doing? I'd probably be picking up aluminum cans off the side of the road. I probably wouldn't have a whole lot of options. I, I could either be wearing one of those little striped suits or orange ones. They, I think they're issuing orange ones today, or either picking up 10 10. I don't know what they're doing. And, you know, I tell people all the time when they look back and they say, boy, you were lucky to be able to do it. I didn't have any options. <laughs> this was it. I had no degree. I had no anything to fall back on. So, there would have been a couple of times when I crossed Lake Erie or Lake Ontario and then eight foot waves and those old 16 foot boats we used to run. I'd have probably quit if I'd have had an option, but I didn't. So I'm stuck with it. That's awesome. <laughs> That's inspiring. <laughs> we, uh, I love that, though. It's <laughs> awesome. It's awesome. We put a Facebook post. It's funny you mentioned that. We put a Facebook post out, you know, hey, we want to do some viewer questions. And funny enough, one of the viewer questions was, uh, what listeners was what college degree do you have to have to to get your career? <laughs> <laughs> the good part is you get your education in the woods. So I started homeschool. I was the first student to ever homeschool. I stayed at home while the rest of them went to school. <laughs> <laughs> so did you, uh, you know, growing up, uh, did you always grow up in, was it South or North Carolina? I grew up in North Carolina, and 
moved to South Carolina just a few years ago, actually. But I had this farm down here. I bought this farm. I live on a little farm in South Carolina, and I bought uh, I bought about half of the farm. I've added to it over the years, but I bought it in uh, about 1983 or four to have for my kids, you know, where we could all have a place to come and hunt. And that's really been cool. It's one of the greatest investments I've ever made from a family perspective. Not only is it a cool place for me to live now, but uh, I, I, I bought it just for the purpose of having a place for me and the boys to, to call our own and come down here and put in food plots and pick up rocks in the field. You know, you look back over the years and we talk about the hunts, but uh, planting food plots, cleaning out fields, working on the tractors, and all the stuff that I did with my boys turned out to be just as much fun as the hunting part of it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so now you, you did all this, and you've, you've done all this for for your kids. And um, the reason I was I was asking the original question did did anybody teach you how to hunt? I mean, was there was there an inspiration out there? You know, was it was did. How, I guess I want to know, how did you get into hunting and fishing the way you did, and how did you grow that passion? You know, I just loved to fish when I was a kid, and I just loved, man, squirrel hunting was my thing. We didn't have deer where I grew up, and there were no turkeys, and I squirrel hunted and rabbit hunted and quail hunted and fished, and it's what I love to do all the time, and it, it's really all I wanted to do, and my aunt gave me a subscription to Bassmaster Magazine, and Ray Scott and all those guys were just getting started. And, man, it was, you know, you read this guy from Tennessee, Bill Dance, and he was making a living. He quit his job. He was a furniture salesman. He quit his job and went full-time in the fishing. I said, that's me. That is what I'm going <laughs> Count me in, brother. And I, I, I mean, when I was 16 years old, I said, what are you going to do? You know, what, what are you going to go to school? You know, I'm going fishing. And uh, I never looked back. And, I mean, people used to think I was kidding, you know, my parents especially. Uh, so that, that's a joke, right? But uh, <laughs> it was a joke. It's exactly what I wanted to do. And it's really, I just so intrigued by fishing, you know, and, and uh, to be able to go out there and, and win the world championship a couple of times and, and you know, win some tournaments and make a living, it's, it's really been kind of a cool thing to do. It's definitely it's, it's got to be a blessing almost. I mean, it's a, it's awesome. Yeah, it's amazing. So now, and and another one of our our viewer question. I know we're kind of getting off, but you're kind of hitting on all the topics. Um, one of our listeners who actually was a guest on this uh, show, our good buddy Baker uh, Levitt from Killcliff, he was wanting to know which which championship did you enjoy more was it 79 or 89 Bassmaster classic <laughs> i definitely enjoyed the 89 better i knew how hard it was i went 10 years trying to win it again <laughs> I the classic, uh in 79 and i only started fishing on the bass side now i fish national bass and american bass but i only i really started fishing bass in 1978 so i qualified and finished uh ninth in the, in the first classic and then I won the second classic I ever fished in in my life so uh, I was 26 years old when I won the classic first time and so I went nine long years trying to win it again before I won it the second time so I appreciated it a whole lot more and that it was so much more dramatic in 89 in 79 I led it from start to finish and I had a pretty good lead all the way. It wasn't a lot of pressure. And in 89, I won by two ounces. Ooh. And I came way back behind. I came from further behind than anybody had ever done in the history of the classic at the time. So it was very dramatic win. So it, it was a lot more suspenseful. And going nine years without winning, it, it was a big deal to come back and, and win. Man, I bet that guy. I bet the guy who got second place was wishing. Man, I wish that bass would have sol- swallowed three ounces of <laughs> lead or something like that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that was, uh, yeah. You won that. Let's see, September, about two months before I was born. 
<laughs> so well, I, that makes me feel real good. I, I like that. Well, I'm, I'm still in my 40s. I'm 40, 22. I'll be 40, 23 here in just a couple of weeks. <laughs> I was about to say, yeah, I did not see that uh, that episode live. Hank, there's one thing we got to talk about oh, here, boy. and yeah. I love this. Um, we got to talk about it. The Super Nintendo video game <laughs> that you had. Um I was probably four years old when this came out, and can you? Um, you had to be one of the first, like I guess, fishermen with a video with a game. video game ever, right? Is that is there some sort of like record on that? You know, they started that little deal, get real, get radical. We had to do that little handheld fishing game, and then there was a company out in San Francisco that started making. Uh, uh, golf games and different things, and they got the right idea. We'd do a fishing game, and it was very successful. It, it was a lot of fun doing that, and uh, it was one of the first games out there for for the outdoors or for fishing. I guess there were some other uh, maybe hunting games out there, but uh, yeah, it's a pretty cool thing to do. <laughs> well, I I still <laughs> have a long way back. It is, it is. I still have a functioning Super Nintendo, and I wonder... We're going to have to order this game. I, I, oh, this game is at my house, at my parents' house. I, I, I'm telling you, I know it you is. You really do have it? Because I want it, because I still play sure my I Super do. Nintendo. Because I want to I so tell you funny... Gonna, hey, if, if we're going to start one up and everybody, i got an 8-track tape. And none of you guys got an 8-track tape. <laughs> you, did, you did not have an 8-track, a Hank Parker 8-track tape? I got a Jimi Hendrix tape track. Oh, there you go. <laughs> it's close enough, right? I want to tell you a funny story about this uh, this video game. Uh, there's this um, if, uh, near a town where we're from, uh, Rock Island, Illinois. There's this uh, it's this it's this bar, and you know it's where all the young kids hang out. And you know the the new thing for like young kids is to to get back into like you know some of the older you know video games uh, technology things, and they have a they do have a Super Nintendo set up, and this game, I remember walking in there, I I do stand-up comedy from time to time, and after a show one day, I, I remember going into the bar, and somebody was playing this exact game, and they were enjoying themselves. <laughs> I, I, so, you know, 20-some-odd years later, you know, this game's still being played in public, and that is awesome. I, I think that's super cool to me. <laughs> it's really cool. Pretty crazy, actually. Isn't it? <laughs> Hank, do you have a copy of this game still, or is it just kind of? You something? know, I just found one. It's amazing. I had uh, I moved down here about twelve years ago from my office. You know, I was in the racing business for a while, so I moved all my my fishing studio into a big uh, uh, complex where I had my race shop and I had all sorts of things and. And uh, I had a lot of stuff in storage, so I moved it down here in a big 18-wheeler trailer, and I unloaded about half of it. <laughs> I didn't unload. Oh. So I threw that trailer, and I unloaded, and I found that hot B. Hank Parker. Uh, um, I got a VHS and a DVD. <laughs> That's awesome. We're going to have to get a copy of this thing and see how really good of a fisherman you are. <laughs> I will say, though, if I had my own video game in 94 or whenever this was released on Super Nintendo and all that, or every video game, if I had more than one, I would have it framed in my living room, and I would look at it every day. Oh, yeah, no, if I had a video game in 1994, in 2016, I'd still order pizza that way. Like, if I, Hank, if I was you and I was calling Domino's, I'd say, hey, this is Hank Parker, uh, you know, from uh, the video game in 94, I'd like to order a large pepperoni, please. (laughs) You just never let it go. No. <laughs> now, let me ask you. I said, frame it, then. I'll, I'll go get them out of the uh, storage bin. I'll put them in the frame just because you guys recommend it. <laughs> yeah, no, do it and take a picture and send it to us. That'd be <laughs> awesome. I, I, I am kind of curious, though, this, 18, uh, this 18-wheel trailer. Now, when you said you unloaded half of it, is the other half still unloaded? Like, would you let, like, you know, three – Four guys from Illinois come down and rummage through it <laughs> once in a while, see see what kind of goodies are well, in there. Well, just keep this in mind. My son, Billy, we call Catfish, that hosts the uh, Flesh and Blood show with me. He said that the day after I die, it's going to be the biggest yard sale in history. <laughs> I got every rock reel that I've ever owned. I got everything stored. 
And he says, the day after I die, highest bidder gets whatever. He just bid all his junk. <laughs> That'd be that. I'm not going to say that's a good day, but for collectors it will be, but it'll be a really somber day because, you know. <laughs> um, the, You mentioned your son and the Flesh and Blood show. Um, I remember I watched a clip of you guys. Um, you were setting up. There was this buck that was doing almost the same thing every afternoon, and he set you up on the lower end of the field in a ground blind, hoping one of you guys would get a shot. He, Your son was thinking he was going to get the shot on it. And ended up working out where you ended up putting basically a heart shot on this deer. And I just thought that was a good, like, I could relate to that showing you guys in hunting camp, cutting up and just giving each other crap over just a big old buck like that. It just reminded me of my experiences with my dad and planning what we're going to do. Like, oh, you're going to go here? Oh, yeah. Well, then I'm going to go over here. <laughs> well, it was kind of dirty. And I, uh, I don't, uh, I don't, know what he thinks about it, but I thought it was great. <laughs> that deer was going straight to him, and I grunted him back, and he came back, and I killed him. If I let him go, he went right to Junior. But, that, you know, all fair and love and war and deer on me. My, my kids have done, me, uh, have done me pretty dirty in the last couple of years. <laughs> back. So I guess I deserve it, but I'm going to get them every chance I get. <laughs> That's awesome. You might as well put the pressure on him. Did you at least mount that one just to rub it in his face every time? No, but I replay that video every time he comes to the house. <laughs> That's awesome. You just have I, it on a continuous loop. Yeah, just play it all yeah, the time. A continual play loop all the time. Every time he comes in, I put it on. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I would, too. I would, too, if I were you. Just rub it in his face every chance he can. I love seeing that. Um. I don't know. If it, I want to segue a little bit into uh, Schwacker broadheads. Um, what? When did you first start shooting Schwacker broadheads? You know, I started. I had such a hard time. I've never been the world's greatest archer. I've loved it, and I started hunting with an old uh, bear whitetail hunter. And I, I well, I actually started with a long and went to the old whitetail hunter's first compound I had, and. I've been bow hunting forever, and uh, I just had such a hard time with fixed blade broadheads, and I lost so many deer, and I had a guy turn me on to a Vortex uh, expandable broadhead, and I, I thought they were silly when I first looked at them, but then when I started shooting deer with them, I was amazed at how much more proficient they were than fixed blades, so I really got hooked on them. The problem with that broadhead that I shot for so many years was you could not take quartering shots. Mm-hmm. It had to be very flat. If you, it would literally bounce off of them. But you had to have a flat shot. Well, I saw this broadhead called a Sonoran broadhead, and I looked at that thing and I opened it up. And I played. I said, "That is the worst. That is that is perfect. That's what I need." So I started shooting that broadhead. Well, the guy that designed it is literally a rocket scientist. He worked for Raytheon, and he designed missiles and rockets for the government. Wow. <laughs> yeah, he's oh, pretty well qualified. Yeah, that's pretty good. It's really honestly designed by a rocket scientist. That's why when someone says, it's not rocket science, you can be like, well, actually, it kind of is. What did some guys say to me? It's on the back of this is rocket science. <laughs> yeah, not rocket surgery. That's what that dude said to me. Well, it's not rocket surgery. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so when I started shooting it, I was blown away. And uh, I, I tried to help him get people to market for him. We took it to several different of the leading companies trying to get them to take it to market. And uh, nobody did. And so I finally just said, to heck with it. I'm going to take it to market. So we renamed it Slacker. Uh, and uh, took it to market, and it's been very successful. We've had some really great years, and it grows every year. More and more people shoot it, and the thing that we've learned about the guys that shoot Slacker, uh, they always shoot it. They don't switch. You don't have to, uh, you don't lose market. So once you get a guy, you got him. You just got to get enough people to shoot him. Yep. And, uh, that, that's our biggest challenge. If we can get people to shoot him, uh, they're hooked on them, just like I am. It, it's an amazing broadhead. I had nothing to do with it other than I recognized 
that it was the world's greatest design when I first saw it, and that's the only thing I had to do with it. I, I'm not worked any in the design department. That was all a guy named Rick Forrest. But it's an incredible broadhead. And, you know, you, you were talking about once guys shoot them, they don't ever stop shooting them. So Levi Morgan shoots Schwackers, uh, so Kurt had to shoot them too. <laughs> and uh, Kurt had some really good success. I think this is your first year shooting them. Well, I think we you have... can't. I know Hank, you and Levi. I you know I was watching videos on Schwackers and videos with you promoting Schwacker and Levi sh- promoting Schwacker, and I kind of just wanted accuracy. I the last year and a half, two years with Archer, I became obsessed with accuracy and broadhead accuracy, and Schwackers literally fly exactly like a field point um, for for me anyway, and I had a very successful year this year and I've had the craziest blood trails with these broadheads <laughs> and I just I love the whole concept of them I got my dad shooting them I talked all my buddies into shooting them and I, I switched to them this year and had great success with it if, if you went back and listened to some of the podcast episodes between late October and November every episode has a <laughs> schwacker plug in it about our blood trails and the success we had and it's just and we have nothing to do with Schwacker. Yeah, we have nothing to do with Schwacker. We just love them so, <laughs> love these so dang heads. much. So. See, see now, and there's a funny story because uh, Kurt shot a doe early this year, and uh, I remember he shot it, and it was it was a, it was a funny shot. And when we finally find this find this deer, Kurt was kind of like, "Man, he's like, hey, look at that little hole." He's like, "Man, I, I don't I don't know if I ever want to go to mechanical broadheads ever again." He's like. I don't know. He wasn't too sure of it. And then we flipped the dough around, and he was like, ah, uh, yeah, I'm sticking with Schwacker. <laughs> well, I'm like the guy that in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, at the big outdoor show up there, and the guy walks up to me and he said, yeah. He said, I've seen Levi kill all these deer with that Schwacker broad here. And he said, I'm really not all that impressed. He said, I've seen you kill him. And he said, I'm impressed because you ain't made a good shot yet. <laughs> <laughs> You say, uh, thanks. It's a great compensator. <laughs> well, hey, you know, I guess that speaks for the product, yeah. <laughs> as far as well, the... yeah, I'm a heck of a testimony for Swagger. Hey, I, you're, I you're still out killing out stuff. About eight years, and I haven't made a good shot yet. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so, what, in your opinion, what makes the Schwacker broadhead so devastating compared to just your run-of-the-mill expandable? Well, what I thought when I first saw it, I thought, well, this thing works like a vortex, and it's just, uh, uh, it's, it's got a protruding, uh, point that goes beyond, uh, the wing blade, so you can shoot quartering shots because you've got an inch of broadhead in front of your blades, and that's, that's the way I thought. But then once we started shooting it, and I saw how the wing blades opened, and it's a grass plated open. We did this deal called the Science of Broadheads. And if you watch it, that thing goes into ballistic jail. We shot different brands of broadheads, just like five or six different leading broadheads. We shot this ballistic jail. And if you watch with that slow motion camera, every broadhead, with the exception of Schwacker, every one of them, when it made contact with that ballistic jail, that thing had a lot of bend in it. That knock would go way over to the left and then way back to the right and way back to the left, and then finally it would, ne- it would settle down and get straight again. Mm-hmm. With the that didn't happen. When that hit that ballistic gill because of the way those wing blades open and you had that graduated open, it didn't. It wasn't like popping a chute on a drag car. But all those other broadheads, because the minute they hit, they fully deploy and they're not a graduated open, so you have all of that energy stopping immediately. So the back of that ball, the back of that arrow has to bend to absorb that energy from that thing slamming on brakes. Well, with the slacker, that doesn't happen. It yeah. is a graduated open, and that was what that ball head was designed for to start with. Rick Carr designed that ball head to shoot elk uh, in the Sonoran Mountains in Arizona where he hunted. He's designed it to shoot elk with little pound bones and still get passed through. So it wasn't at all designed to do what I thought it was. 
and I didn't really understand the broadhead until we started doing some of this testing. And it's just been enlightening to me to know that uh, this thing's got less of benefits than just being able to take a quarter and shot. It, it's an amazing broadhead. It really is, and I can say from experience, I'm 100% satisfied with Schwacker. And when uh-huh. I say I talk my dad into Schwacker broadheads, Hank, my dad shot muzzy broadheads his whole bow hunting <laughs> career. And I said, Dad, you got to try these. He tries them, shoot, shoots a doe with it, and he's like, I talked to him today on the phone before I told him you were going to be on the podcast. He's like, man, I love my Schwackers. He's like, I got all, I got a, a stockpile of Schwackers for next season. <laughs> and for my dad, that's one thing he was super focused on and passionate about was his Muzzy Broadheads. And Muzzy is a great broadhead too, but I just got him hooked on these Schwackers this last season, and he's just, I don't i don't know if he'll ever change now. It's its pretty funny, actually, to see well, that. Personally, I don't think I'll switch to anything else. See, now here's the, here's the funny story with, with everybody, that's, you know, with all our friends and stuff. Kurt killed the first uh, first doe with the Schwackers, uh, and then he shot a shot a shot a his biggest buck that he's ever shot. He's a gorgeous buck. Shot with the Schwacker. Eric goes, "All right, cool. I want to buy Schwackers." The next day, he shoots a buck. It was a, literally the next. It day. was literally the him. next day. Bought the Schwacker, shot the buck. Uh, a buddy of ours, uh, Trevor. Trevor. I think he just switched to Schwackers, shot a buck. Buddy of ours, Derek, switched to Schwackers. Everybody's like, he's like, everybody's shooting Schwackers. Let me see what I can do. Well, that's worth mentioning because when Derek shot this buck, he did not hit one vital organ. And this might not make sense. He split this deer down the chest cavity with that Schwacker blade, like just how you'd split the chest to clean a deer. That's what he did with this broadhead, and it took it out in 60 yards. Amazing. Yeah, so, you know, the one we've been seeing, that, and we get testimonies all the time, that there is some hydraulics that take place inside that deer, like an expansion of a bullet, the way that thing opens, and it goes in, and then it begins to open, and it actually creates some hydraulics. So you get some ruptures in that deer that you wouldn't normally get from just a cut. It's crazy, uh, the fact that it, uh, it can give you some secondary... Uh, benefits from the the way that thing opens and gives and causes hydraulic within the cavity of the deer, and maybe you don't even hit a vital and still have a good kill within a hundred yards. You find your deer, yeah. And I, I take advantage of that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Hank, I'm, we're all kind of curious. Uh, we saw this coming out. So, Schwacker was really known for. Yeah, the way it enters, uh, enters inside and gets past the rib cage, then it deploys. It's a mechanical. Now they've got a fixed blade that they're coming out with. I mean, you know, can you can you shed some light on that? Because you know, it's kind of curious. Touch base a little bit on it. Just touch base, yes. Because it's kind of curious to me that a company that's been so successful with showing that mechanical really is the way for broadheads. Now they've got a fixed blade. I mean, what? Can you tell us what's going on well, with that a little bit? The history behind the fixed blade, we had a guy that came to us with an idea, and he said that he had documented this, and you could bend the blade. If you'll look at the slacker fixed blade broadhead, it's got a little bend on it. And that bend in that blade, if, if let's just say you could take the exact same broadhead without these bends, and you could shoot it at... 50 yards, and this is just for uh, uh, an illustration purpose. In 50 yards, it dropped 10 inches. You could put these bends in the blade, and you shoot it at 50 yards, and it would only drop 5 inches. So, And it would make it more accurate. So you'd have an extremely accurate broadhead, and because the physics defies the gravity, you would only have half the drop. Now, the problem is, and I'm going to tell you this, and I'm not told this to anybody, we have put that ball head on hold. You cannot get it out of a target. The bend in those blades make that ball head, uh, the, the dynamics of it, it doesn't drop as far as it normally would because of those bends. And it, uh, it is extremely accurate. 
the problem is there's nobody that makes a target that you can pull it out of. So I immediately, after testing, right after the, the APA show, I said, guys, we got to put this ball head on hold. I don't want to slack your name on something, and a guy goes and buys it. He goes out there and shoots it into a target, and he can't pull them out. He jerks his insert out, tears the target up. So right now, the, the fixed blade broadhead from Slacker is officially put on hold simply because we can't get it to pull from the target. That well, seems like th- the best marketing <laughs> marketing ploy I've ever heard because that's saying something. Yeah, see, that's not a bad thing because yeah. that's... I mean, what's it going to do to an animal? It's going to eat right through it, ain't it? Yeah. It's going to be a devastating. If anybody can figure this out, I'm not sure that we will. I'm not sure that Swacker Broadhead will bring this idea out. Somebody will do it, and they're going to have to create and develop a special target to be able to pull these things. But uh, that or some sort of sorry, I mean, yeah, some sort of maybe like some sort of practice head for like, but you couldn't simulate those bends in the blade. There's a lot of thought that's going to have to go into it. Same bend in the blade, and you're going to have to have that bend in the blade because. The exact same broadhead without the bend will drop about three inches at 40 yards. will drop about three inches further than the one with the bend. Yeah. So we got to practice with what you're going to shoot because, I mean, we're talking about a, a, a big difference at 50 yards. I mean, it might be five or six inches difference at 50 yards. So yeah. you have to practice with it. And I swear it tears targets all the pieces, and you cannot pull it apart. Wow. So we, We've really decided to put that on hold. I was not a fan, but here's where we are in, in, in the archery world. Forty percent of the market, all of our research indicates that this is accurate data. Forty percent of the market will not shoot an expandable broadhead. They're missing the target. They're missing the, the they're, they're missing the mark. Uh, expandable broadhead, in my opinion, is far superior than a fixed blade. But there's 40% of the market that won't shoot them. So we were trying to get a little bit of that market share with this idea that this guy had developed. And it's a great idea. It's nobody ever thought, hey, with that little bend in the end of that blade, you cannot get it out of the target. So now that you realize that, that's where we are. But as bows get faster... When they start shooting 340, 350, 360 feet a second, as a lot of bows are doing now, IPO, uh, full throttle, 373. I mean, it's crazy how fast they're getting. Six broadheads are not going to shoot well. And especially when you get in the, in the western part of the world and higher elevations and thin air, man, to try to shoot a, an era 350 or 60 feet a second with a fixed broadhead, that is a challenge, man. I mean, you'll spend a lot of time sending the bow and paper tuning to get yep. that shoot with a slacker, screw the son of a gun on, and it shoots like a field point. Count me in. <laughs> for sure, yeah. for sure. I got to agree because, I mean, you said it perfectly. The the bows are getting so fast. I mean, you have to just be an absolute expert on tuning or you're going to have to take the time and you're going to pull your hair out doing it. I basically got sick and tired of I, – I was a fixed blade guy, diehard fixed blade, and that's why I, I started shooting Schwacker. I'm like, I shot one into my target, and I'm like, oh, it's dead on. And the cool thing I liked about them is I just put a little piece of electrical tape around the blades, and I just used my yeah. actual blade that I killed my buck with this year. I shot it dead center in the middle of that white dot on my target. And I'm like, okay, it flies good. I know that. All the – all that's going to happen now is the blades are going to open and do the, do the job they have to do. So, uh, it's great. I I love them. I couldn't ask you for know, any more about it. We're out here in the eastern part of the world, and I'm only about where I live, only about 200 feet above, 175 feet above sea level. Air stick. We got all get out here and practice. And all my buddies, we, we'll go to elk camp. And two or three guys will be shooting fixed blade broadheads. They cannot hit a a target at 50 yards. I mean, there we get up there in that 7,000 foot, 6,000 foot, 5,000 foot elevation, and that's thin air. And they the broadhead that was flying pretty good for them 
uh, at 150 or 200 feet above sea level will no longer fly. Mm-hmm. It's a and guys don't even think about it. But when that air is yawning three or four or five degrees, it's eating up at least half of your kinetic energy. So you shoot that elk, and it only goes in four inches because your air is yawning, and uh, you don't have uh, you don't have good penetration. And that that is a uh, uh, an issue that people don't even realize is so critical. Is if that air is yawning two or three degrees, it's just killing your kinetic energy. Absolutely. And, I mean, that's a, a very people, good point. A lot of people probably don't even think about that. You know, I wouldn't think about it. Changing sea level and all that stuff. Yeah, tip, I mean, unless you go out west and travel and change elevation or do whatever, I mean, you don't have to really think about it. But, you know, unless you had this conversation, you would just go out there to try and kill an elk, and yeah. then you'd be like, what the heck happened? Yeah, your arrow's way off, or it's not penetrating. You know, you're or... not getting the penetration you wanted. Um, what's a, This is kind of an off-topic question, but what's a Saskatchewan's um, uh, elevation? Are, are they going to... I imagine the, they're higher. Was, I mean, are they super higher? Do they vary a whole lot? Well, anytime your air is thinner, you know, you get less resistance. So you can shoot a little flatter sometimes, and you can shoot, you know, it'll shoot a little higher. But the, the bad part of that is you don't have that air to stabilize. It doesn't catch that fletching. And so you don't have the stabilization at the back of the air. So... Uh, your back of the air is fighting to catch air for stability, and the higher you go in elevation, the more difficult it becomes. And if you really, if you're going to go out west, and you know you're going to go above the tree line, and you're going to get in some real high elevations, you need to shoot your bow uh, where you can actually shoot an arrow without fletching on it, and still have a stable arrow. I, I paper tune my bow before I go to real high elevations. Without it, with that, with no flexion. That's a that's a great tip, actually, that's for that. Awesome yeah, tip. yeah. A lot of that stuff gets way overlooked, in my opinion. Um, I tell you, the biggest the, archers are not real, real smart and educated about their equipment. Not that they're not smart people. I wouldn't say that at all. <laughs> only only, fi- only fishermen are. Yeah. <laughs> only fishermen the are the smart ones. The archers that you talk to, they don't know what their arrow weighs. Yeah. They don't understand how important weight fall it is. So everybody shoots 100-grain broadheads because they want that speed, but they lose stability a lot of times because it's not enough weight forward. When you put a piece of kite string on a rock and you throw it, that string will follow that rock every time. The more you get that rock, the lighter you get that rock, the more interference you get from that string, and the more that rock will not be as forward as it would be if you have a heavy rock with a light string. Weight forward is everything for stability with an arrow. And you cannot shoot an arrow with no fletching on it with a light broadhead or a light field point. The heavier your field point is, the more consistent you'll have that arrow fly with no fletching on it because it's like the kite string following the rock. So I would encourage everybody in the world to shoot a 125-grain broadhead or even more. That's fair. Well, I, I've, That's I've noticed that this year because I added, I actually added brass to my uh, inserts, or my inserts are brass, so they're a little bit heavier. And I have found more accuracy with my arrows to get that front, of, to get that front of center more heavier. That's true. And also, I started experimenting with, uh, I started shooting a recurve this year. Everyone told me you want more weight out, out on the front of your arrow for accuracy, especially when shooting a recurve. Put more weight out there. You know, and you learn that. You know, that's the basics of archery is a longbow or a recurve. That's where we all started. And you learn that the heavier that tip is on the arrow, the more stability you have and the straighter your arrow shoots. So somehow we think because we want 400 feet a second, we can throw all that out the door because we've got this compound and we've got a loop and we've got a release. And so we've got so many more things to help us. But in reality, you're exaggerating all your issues because you've got so much more speed. So you really need weight forward on a compound bow 
It's just as much as you do a traditional, though. So yeah. I don't know how we've gotten away from that. But people are going to too light of an arrow. They don't have enough spine to stabilize or too much flex in the arrow. Too light of, of tip. If you can stiffen that arrow up and you can and put a little weight on that point, it can sure offset maybe some sloppy release or a bow that's not perfectly tuned uh, or whatever, you know. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times when you're in a tree stand hunting from a tree, you can't always have the perfect body position for the best form. So you need to be able to have a little bit of compensation for perhaps having to bend a little crooked to make that shot and not have perfect form and not have a perfect release. Kind of gives you that little leeway in there. Yeah. Great tips all around. And I think this is maybe one of the most informative podcasts that we have done. Yeah. Um, it's just Absolutely. You're... Damn, I like that. Hold on, let me pat myself on the back. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I mean, it's just, it's just some of those things that is so easily overlooked, and and it's, so, it's things you don't even think about that you should be thinking about. Well, just the penetration thing we were talking about. It's like, okay, there's a lot of guys who are like, I don't know, I didn't get any penetration. I don't know what, and then they automatically are like, screw that product or whatever, and then it's, well, it's like, oh man, it wasn't really the product. It was you didn't take responsibility for knowing your equipment and the situation you were putting yeah. it in. And there's a lot, a lot to that. And if you want to be an accurate archer, you really have to be fine tuned with your equipment and know what you're doing. You have to know, know your, the, you got to know your equipment, know the weights, of your arrow, know the everything. You got to know it all. I mean, it's really, it's, you can't just go side it in on a paper a plate and go kill a deer. There's so much more to it. And this, I tell just you, proves hanging around Levi and just listen to him talk about limb pockets and having a little bit more uh, offset here and, and to compensate for this and then watch his form. It, it's so much to being perfect. You know, it, it absolutely. takes to be absolutely perfect. And I'll never be there. I can never have the form. Uh, that Levi Morgan has. He's just so incredibly good at it and just got great form. Well, I, I can't do that, and I understand that, and I'm old, too old to try to relearn everything. <laughs> I want to be the best I can within the parameter that i got to work with, so I try to do everything I can to put the odds in my favor uh, to be as accurate and to get the best penetration and use the best equipment that I can use. And it's critical for me to have everything just right because I need it. <laughs> well, it, what? It, it's definitely true. I mean, I can imagine hanging with Levi and watching him do his thing. The guy's on top of it. But what what bow you, are you shooting? A, what bow are you shooting right now? I just got a new Carbon Air, PSE Carbon Air, and it will blow your mind. When you shoot one of these things, I've been shooting a full throttle forever because I like to be I like to have the very best that I can have, and I like to shoot as flat as I possibly can. And if I don't have time to, to range a deer, if he's 45 yards instead of 35 yards with a full throttle, I'm good. I'm just about two and a half inches different, so I'm good with a slacker. And I like that because that happens to me a lot. But this carbon air, which is not as fast as a bull throttle, it IBOs at about 360, is just the most incredible thing. The whole bow weighs three and a half pounds. Which is uh, incredible. 32 inches axle, axle, and I didn't like that. I like 34-inch minimum axle, axle with a 30-inch draw. Mm -hmm. 32, that's uh, a little short for me. I don't like the geometry of what that does. Yeah. You got a different string I've angle when you're doing that. I've shot my life. I've shot better. I just got this thing at Christmas, and I shoot it better than I've ever shot in my life. It's incredible. That's awesome. I know that's one bow I missed out on the ATA show this year, and I'm kicking myself for it. I wish I would have tried over it. Out. Shooting that thing. Yeah, we just got too busy, and we had to get home. I was like, "Damn, there's a lot it's of bows." A I whole didn't shoot. new experience. You got to go to a dealer somewhere and just shoot a carbon air. It is a whole different experience. It's incredible. It, it really is. I definitely yeah, that's definitely got to be put on the agenda. We got to. I there's a lot of bows I haven't shot this year that I got to get out and uh, and shoot. Um. 
Hank, we really appreciate you coming on the show, man. It's an it's hour been goes an by. Honor, man. Yeah, it's it really honor. has been an honor. Um, I was, you know, I gotta say, I was very, very nervous for this podcast. We, think, you know, the whole we are not worthy, you know, chance we're going on before you, we got a hold of you. So, yeah, this, this has been awesome. We do go over a hoot, and I appreciate what you do, and you bring so much information to the listeners out there, and you do it in a fun way, and and you're not preaching, you're just throwing out ideas, and I like the way you do. One thing that I'd like to say in closing is, as a professional fisherman, you learn and you try to take advantage of every little bitty thing that may come down the pike in an innovative way to give you that little bit of an edge over those other competitors because it's such close competition. And if you can just figure out how to be a little more proficient and make a little better cast or whatever. I lose you. No, no we're, we're still here. here. Oh, I hear a mic in the background. I don't know. Maybe my phone. Oh, I don't know what that is. It, it might <laughs> yeah. be on your end. It might be. I don't know, though. The most yeah, inspirational quote. <laughs> to, to pick back up on that, as a fisherman, you try to take advantage of everything out there that can make you better. Hunters are not like that. Hunters are not, they don't put forth near the effort across the board as fishermen do. Uh, hunters uh, just do it the way their dads taught them or the way they've fallen into a rut and learned. They don't expand their knowledge. They don't take advantage of using premier deer. I do seminars all the time. They don't take advantage of that. They don't really experiment. Well, I like, I've been shooting this broadhead for 20 years, and yeah, I'll lose one or two, but it's amazing to me the different mindset between a hunter and a fisherman. The hunter is more complacent, and he's less apt to experiment and make himself better. Mm-hmm. Man, you can give a fisherman an idea that, hey, this will improve your accuracy, this will help you cast more proficient, and he's on top of it. You can talk that same information to a hunter, and it goes in one ear and out the other. So I encourage everybody, I made a living being the best that I could be, and I still, I can't go sit in a deer stand uh 99 is not a good number if 100 is achievable. And that that is just so important to me. And I try to encourage all these guys in the hunting world, man, let's improve. Let's get better. Let's take this technology that we've got and turn it into uh, a benefit for us in the field. Well, that's... I mean, mean, you guys are are hearing it. it. It's kind of leaving me speechless. You know, like... (laughs) Don't even know what to say. You know, you, as hunters out there, you guys are hearing it, and, I mean, what a better spokesperson to say something like that. So, you know, take what you're hearing right now. Take it all in. And apply it. Yeah, that is true. I, that's the <laughs> best way to explain that. The the hunters are just... The, they're, we stu- get, they're stuck in their ways. Exactly. That's what, that's and that's exactly what I was saying. With, well, that's exactly what I was saying with my dad in the broadheads. Challenge ourselves to be better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, we really appreciate having on, uh, having having you on the show. It's, I'm, I'm, I don't, don't know. I'm know speechless. This episode was awesome. An hour goes by too fast. I hope that we can catch back up and do part yeah, two. Yeah, we have to do part two because there's so much stuff we didn't uh, talk about. You know, they're come here, dear. Well, guys, I'll, I'll be glad to come back anytime y'all have me. I have enjoyed it. You guys are a hoot, and it's a fun thing to do. And uh, I'll be back if you'll have me. Cool. Well, we'd love to absolutely. have you on. Oh, anytime. Absolutely. Hank, stick around on the phone real quick. I'm going to give the listeners a closing. Guys, thank you so much for listening. We got a lot planned for you guys in the future. Um, we're all kind of speechless right now from this episode. It was a blast. Um, I'm speechless. As like is, we say so. every episode, you guys know what to do. Go shoot your bow, and thanks for listening. We love you. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.